Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life Channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jim Breslin, an assistant provost, about his experiences as a college administrator during this pandemic. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Dana. I'm really glad to talk to you today. We're excited to have you, too. Um, Jim, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Uh, sure. So my my academic background is a mix of anthropology and higher education, and I can talk more about my path um, if, if that's something you'd like to hear about. But I think the the work that I do now is really a mix of higher education practice and scholarship. Um, my role as assistant provost is uh, in institutional effectiveness, essentially. So institutional research, institutional effectiveness, assessment, accreditation, those are all things I'm responsible for in my current role. I'm currently assistant provost at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and really, as, as an assistant provost, what that really means is, yes, I have those sort of responsibilities, but I kind of joke with people sometimes that I think being an academic administrator is like being an all-purpose administrator. You kind of go where you're needed and do what's what needs to be done, um, which for me is really great because I, I have found the most rewarding and engaging experiences in my professional life are things where I'm asked to build or contribute to something that's new or collaborate as part of a, a genuine collegial team. Um, and I find that my work as, as an academic administrator really allows me to do that for a lot of my time. Um, so as far as my, my own background, um, my, my research and my practice for most of my career in higher education has focused on um, student success. Um, I have some expertise in academic support and advising. I've done a lot of work in assessment and recently institutional effectiveness. And I've done some, some research and work in leadership and administration in higher ed as well. Great. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you, you kind of mentioned early on, if, if you wanted, if we wanted to hear a little bit more about your journey, I, I think, you know, we have time. I think yeah, it would be absolutely. Great if you want to expand a little bit more about kind of what drew you to um, higher ed and college administration. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's, you know, I was about to say that I think my path into higher education uh, wasn't very traditional, but I'll be honest, I don't know that there is a traditional path into higher ed. I, you know, I don't know that any of us, when we, when we start college ourselves, if we're fortunate enough to be able to do that, have a sense that this is a field of, of scholarship and of practice. So um, I, my bachelor's degree is in anthropology. Um, I actually went to graduate school right after finishing my bachelor's degree in a master's PhD track in anthropology. Um, I had done a little bit of work in cultural anthropology, but was really focused on archaeology at that time. So that was my, my original background. So uh, I have all of the uh, graduate requirements in terms of credit hours for a master's degree in anthropology. But when I started my career, my graduate career at uh, the University of Kentucky, which of course is where we met, um, the the state that year implemented a number of budget cuts for higher education. And one of the ways that the university implemented those cuts was to eliminate funding for people at the master's level. So I found myself in a situation where I was a new graduate student, didn't have any funding and was forced to, to look on my own for other funding opportunities around campus to support my education. And I was really, really fortunate to apply for and get an interview for um, a position as a, essentially a graduate assistant in a new unit that was being created at that time called Academic Enhancement. I was interviewing with a faculty member and the new director who had been hired, I think, about six weeks before I had been hired. We were the first two people hired to create Academic Enhancement at the University of Kentucky. Um, and we ended up working together for, for almost 10 years. It was honestly one of the... You know, one of the greatest sort of confluence of events in my personal, professional and academic life, because the 
the two people I ended up interviewing with for that position, both of them went on to serve on my own dissertation committee several years later. Um, I consider them both friends and, and certainly mentors in my work academically and professionally. And so that's, that's really how I started to, to conceptualize this, this work in higher education. Um, that wasn't really the first time I was exposed to it, though. Uh, my wife, Farah, had been an RA when she was in college. That was not an experience that I had. And she actually, the year before, um, before I switched over, she had started a, a program, a master's program in higher education. So I had sort of a, an external sense of it. But once I got into the work myself, I saw how enticing it was, at least for me. And so I, even though I had spent two years in a master's program in anthropology, rather than take another year, as I traditionally should have, to, to finish a thesis, I ended up transferring master's programs, which is how I learned that you actually can change your major, even as a graduate student, uh, to a, a master's in higher education. And then I took a year off after I finished my master's and started my PhD program. So like I said, my bachelor's degree is anthropology and my graduate degrees are both in higher education uh, from, from the University of Kentucky. And that really kind of propelled me into my career for the last several years. Um, my first 15 years in higher ed were very much focused on student success, but my, my practice as a higher ed professional working on student success required me to do a lot of good assessment work and what I now sort of conceptualize as effectiveness work. I think that's core for, for any of us who work in higher ed, but the way that different graduate programs talk about assessment, the way people interpret what assessment is or how it's done or what it means really varies. And so I found myself doing a lot of that work, working with data, both quantitative and qualitative. Um, I am a qualitative researcher by training and, and by passion. And so I, my own research does sort of trend in that direction, uh, but I'm comfortable doing work, um, you know, across that spectrum. And so I, you know, found myself um, just around two years ago, looking at a potential new opportunity um, here at my, my current institution at Bellarmine University and switched over to, to assistant provost. And so the, you know, now I've really immersed myself in the world of accreditation and effectiveness and, and all that good stuff. So that's kind of been my professional trajectory or path so far. Um, but the, the thing that I, I think I get really excited about being an academic administrator or really just working as a practitioner in higher ed is that I've also been fortunate to have roles essentially as, as adjunct instructor, adjunct faculty in departments at, at a couple different institutions. And that has allowed me to, to sort of stay in the classroom, particularly with doctoral students, which I truly, truly love to do and serve on doctoral committees, which I think is wildly fun and sort of encouraging and gives hope and joy for the future, um, but has also really allowed me to stay engaged in some research. And so I've, I've tried to always have, you know, a couple of research projects going on kind of quote unquote on the side, but I don't really see it as all that separate. Um, I think that, you know, sort of continuing to, to at least dabble in in some good research and some writing and some publishing makes me a better academic administrator. And so that's something I, I continue to try to keep as part of my journey into the field. Thank you. Thank you for sharing some of your story with us. And I I do want to note here for our listeners that um, you mentioned real quickly in there that we met at the University of Kentucky. So I always like to... Um, you know, let our listeners know when I'm having my my colleagues and and friends. You are a dear friend. You have been for many years um, on on the show, and so I um, just so I want to elaborate for uh, just a bit um, on that. So we did meet at the University of Kentucky, um, and I don't know if it was your first year in your PhD program, but I, I know. Oh, I keep thinking we met in our qual. So I am a qualitative researcher by training and passion, as you say, as well as you, as you well know, and our listeners hopefully know by now as well. Um, and I know we had that qualitative class together, that series, but I think we actually met in student development theory. Um, yeah, that might've been, I think that was our first class together. So I don't know mm -hmm. if that was in your master's or your, I think that probably was or PhD program. That was my PhD program. Cause I did a master's in something else. Yeah. And that um, was my master's. Yeah. Okay. So that's, and that was, um, that was early on in, in my time at UK and, and mm -hmm. probably at yours, yours as well. So, um, we took classes together for, for several years and then we actually had the opportunity to work together, um, where I became a teaching assistant in academic enhancement for a number of years. And, um, so we had known each other prior to that in our program. And then we worked together, um, with me doing that and we have worked together since. So mm -hmm. it has been a, I mean, I don't even know, long-term, over a decade, 
well yes. over a, well over a decade at this point. Um, <laughs> and so we have we have long history together, and we've done some great uh, and continue to do some great work together. We're writing together now, and so I just always want to make note of that for our listeners, so they know the connection points. Um, and I also was hoping maybe you could um, expound a little bit more on your current role. So we have some context for this conversation in terms of what your day-to-day looks like, kind of what you're doing at your institution. Some folks who are in upper level, you know, academic administration like, would know that. But, you know, if there's graduate students listening or undergrad students listening, they may not know what that really looks like. So Absolutely. if you can maybe paint a bit of a picture for our listeners of what, you know, what your role is at your institution and what it is that you do. Yeah, very glad to do that. Um, it's it's funny when you you ask me what my day to day looks like as I'm sitting here uh, during the pandemic at my dining room table staring at a screen. It looks a lot like this all day every day, but that's not necessarily what the work looks like, right? Um, so, like I said, my role really has some relatively specific defined responsibilities, um, but there's a lot of overlap in what those mean and sort of how fungible they are, and so it really. There's, there's the, the constant response set of responsibilities that I have, and then there are the things that shift to either suit the needs of the institution or our strategic plan or of the provost or the provost team. Um, and so the, the things that are core to my role uh, as in this particular assistant provost job, um, I serve as our institutional accreditation liaison. So uh, I am, Bellarmine is located in Kentucky, so we are accredited, accredited by SAC COC. Uh, so I'm our institutional liaison to SAC COC. And get and send and receive lots of communication uh, with people there in Atlanta. Uh, I'm also sort of the, the chief academic assessment administrator at the institution. So my team is responsible for, for academic program assessment, uh, for supporting divisions across campus, whether it's student affairs or student success uh, in doing the kinds of student learning outcomes assessment that they do. Um, I'm also responsible for our state licensure um, and so those are those sound like really highly technical uh, responsibilities, and in some ways they are. Uh, I, but I think it's really important to understand for people who don't have a, much of a background in academic administration. You know, I didn't have a lot of exposure to accreditation before I started this role. Uh, that's not to say I wasn't involved in it. I had served on some committees and done some support work in in previous roles that were more student success focused, working with people who did accreditation or did effectiveness or assessment work. But it had never been core to my my own professional responsibilities. Um, but because I had built a, a skill set and a familiarity, and I think more than anything else, a, a passion for continuing my own learning and professional development, it wasn't, by the time I actually took on this role, it didn't feel like that huge a leap to me, even though it was a departure in terms of the, the, the particulars of my day to day. In terms of the realities of my day to day, you know, sometimes it's digging into really specific institutional or accreditor or state licensure policies and determining what we need to do as an institution to, you know, advance our strategic agenda and maintain good relationships and compliance with all of those things. Other times in the day, it's leading or serving on um, some standing or ad hoc committees or task force. I mean, I know we all have lots of committees in higher ed. Um, you know, so right now at Bellarmine, we're working on a number of initi- initiatives to expand the, the academic programs that we're offering to, to offer things in different modalities or in different places, um, you know, talking about different kinds of academic programs. So it really does does vary quite a bit. Um, the other piece that I'll say, and this is one of the reasons I actually really love my, my current position, is that in our academic affairs team, we actually do have a really fantastic group of colleagues who do function at that level as a truly collegial collaborative team. Um, it's, 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 not, um, it's not even really trite for me to say, it's not territorial, it's not as political as, as other teams that I've served on. Um, there are five or six of us and we work very closely together and very well together. And that's where I also find a lot of my professional joy. Um, I think, you know, Danny, you and I have talked about before that I think one of the most important um, realizations I had at some point in my career is the need to find your people. Right. And you talked about our relationship and how far back we go. And when I think about my people, you're absolutely one of my people. And fortunately, you know, in my day to day job, I get to work with some of my people every day. And that's that's incredibly fortunate place to be. That is great. I think I think I need to do a show on finding your people. I think that might be one because I listen to that. (laughs) <laughs> That's a theme I, I we do talk about that a lot because um, the further along in a career you get, you realize that when you find those people, that's it's a precious thing, um, and you take those people with you wherever you go, even right. even when you leave institutions together. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So if you're willing, I, I'd like to, for a minute, go back to last March um, and the moment of the shutdown. And I will mm-hmm. note for listeners that we are now recording at the end of January 2021. So that's our present moment. Um, what was that time like for you in last March of 2020 um, when the you know, kind of all shut down. Yeah, absolutely. I look back on it now. And of course, I think for like most people I've talked to, it was, you know, chaotic and confusing. And, you know, the ground felt like it was literally shifting under our feet, like hour by hour and day by day. For me personally, it honestly feels bizarre to even talk about it like this now. Um, But the Bellarmine made a decision to shut down on uh, that Wednesday. I don't remember the exact date in March, but that Wednesday, I believe that second week in March, the same time that most other institutions were doing the same thing. And the Sunday before that, I actually had flown to D.C. for some meetings that I had. So I serve uh, in a couple of different volunteer roles in ACPA, which is uh, one of our larger professional associations. Um, And I was in D.C. for some meetings. And I remember talking with my wife that weekend about does it really make sense to fly to D.C.? It seems like there's a lot more talk about this coronavirus thing. Uh, And we looked at, you know, CDC guidance and at other, you know, government websites and, and travel advisories that were out there. And the guidance at the time was, you know, as long as you're washing your hands and, you know, trying to pay attention to your hygiene, it's probably fine. Uh, and that was, I literally flew out to DC on a Sunday and I found out for sure that Bellarmine was going to be closing down on Wednesday when I was uh, standing, waiting to board a plane uh, in, I believe I was in national airport in DC and got a text from our provost saying, heads up, this is what we're doing. Um, and then had to get on a plane with, you know, 150 other people and sit <laughs> shoulder to shoulder for several hours. Um, and it, I, I really am kind of marveling at that now because the idea of, for me at least, for even being on a plane at all right now, I, you know, this is probably the longest I've, I've been without flying in some time. Of course, the, there's a lot of privilege there. But to not have traveled at all since last March is, is very strange. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, having gone in a matter of, of literally a few days, um, convening with people from all over the country in D.C., and having up some some great conversations and meetings there to being wary of being around people and then coming back and, and really shutting things down. Um, for our campus in particular, I think that there was a lot of, of concern and consternation, you know, as a, we're a, a small to mid-sized private, uh, really liberal arts focused institution. And there's, uh, you know, lots of wonderful things about Bellarmine. Um, we, have not traditionally offered a lot of our programs online. So I think like a lot of institutions, the idea of moving everything online seemed uh, like it was gonna be an incredible lift. And I think it was for everyone involved. Um, that includes students too, by the way. Mm-hmm. But I think that the other thing that when I look back on it now and I think about March, it was what's interesting to me now is how temporary the rhetoric was then and how temporary we all sort of wanted to believe that some of those transitions would be. I think like everyone else, we were going to we were going to move everything online for two weeks. And then at the end of those two weeks, it was, well, we're going to do two more weeks. And then it was the rest of the spring semester. And then it was, you know, and, and on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I think when I think back to it now, it, it certainly felt chaotic. But it also I realize now with the benefit of hindsight that I don't think that that really any of us were prepared or had the perspective at that time to see just how far reaching and long term the implications were going to be for what we were all experiencing. Yes, yes, exactly. And I, um, I think that was a really for for just about everybody. Um, I think your story about flying and um, signals this, this idea of this just total pivot, like just 180 pivot, Um, like life is normal, semi normal, wash your hands, you know, (laughs) be a little mindful. And then literally everything shut down. And, um, and I remember that moment, because I met you in DC. Um, so I think listeners know I'm based in around the Philadelphia area and I had, I ended up eating a train ticket for that trip cause I had purchased a train ticket and I was watching the news and everything myself. And I, I had this conversation with my husband, like, I think I should just eat it and rent a car. Like, cause we only have one car as a family. And I was like, I think I just, so I rented a car and I drove, I drove down and, um, and yes, I think that story and I, and I know you and I know you've been incredibly cautious um since then so um you know to think you know that you were on a plane and then a few days later your whole campus shut down so um i think that was the experience for almost most people in the world it was kind of like almost like i felt like it came out of not it came out of nowhere but sort of it was just such a quick pivot 
um, and everybody was scrambling. And you're right to note that students were as well. Um, it wasn't just those of us, you know, those teaching and, and, and administrators and all of that, but for students as well, for sure. So, you know, that was last March and here we are at the end of January. 2021. So coming back to this present moment, there are a number of ways campuses are operating at this time. There's large debates about this. We have fully virtual to fully in-person and variations of hybrid in between. Right. Um, and we're all in, in higher ed still trying to figure out what this means because exactly what you said, it was like, oh, it's two weeks and then it's, oh, it's two weeks more or, oh, it's this semester or, oh, it's, and now we're talking in years, right? We're talking beyond right. months into years. Um, what about you? What does life look like for you now? And how are you managing this ever-changing climate of the pandemic on your campus and in your role? Sure. So for me personally, it's been uh, exclusively remote work uh, really since last March, since that, that week. I, you know, I got home that, late that Wednesday night. Uh, I was in the office the, that Thursday and Friday. I've been back on, on my campus a handful of times since then, but it's usually just because I needed to run into my office either to get equipment or to get some, some resources to do my work. Uh, but, you know, to, to really paint a picture, I've been sitting at the uh, table in our dining room with a 32-inch TV that is usually sitting uh, in our guest room that I've hooked up to my laptop from work and that's <laughs> and with, the, with the keyboard and a mouse. And that's, that's pretty much been what my work life has looked like since last March. Uh, my wife has a similar setup downstairs uh, in, our, in our basement um, with the exact same kind of, kind of tech. Uh, as far as, you know, what it's really looked like, I think the the ways that both the pandemic and trying to, for most people, when it's possible and in higher ed, it's fortunate that so many of us are are able to try to work remotely. The compounding effects of those two things, of, of people navigating technology that perhaps they weren't familiar with or accustomed to, um, you know, the different kinds of, keeping in mind, I'm, I'm an anthropologist and, and a social scientist really at heart, but people trying to learn how to interact with each other, um, both verbally and non-verbally on screens, I think has been really you know, would make a really interesting dissertation for someone who could be sort of more dispassionate about it than I could be. Um, but I think that all that stuff has been interesting. And also, you know, at times it has been, it has lent some like humor. Uh, at times it's been sort of tragic. I think we, we talk a lot, at least in my work, about the impacts of the pandemic, certainly on student learning and development on, on you know, faculty and staff, um, uh, interpersonal relationships and all those things. But the impacts, of course, on people's health and well-being, certainly health related to the pandemic, but I'm talking about, you know, mental health and spiritual health. Um, I think that sort of the work that we do in, in as administrators in higher education is inherently complicated. And I think that when we try to do the work well, we're holding a lot of things at one time. We hold our, our institutional missions and our strategic priorities. We try to hold the, the values with which we do our own work. Um, we try to hold the, the realities of what's going on around in the world around us, because of course, higher ed is not divorced from the world. It's not divorced from politics or public policy. And in fact, is, is very much related to all those things. And it's adding on things that size was the pandemic and all its in fact, in, in, impacts and working remotely, uh, students trying to learn remotely, faculties trying to teach remotely. It's there are so many more things to hold now in sort of every decision-making process, every even small, seemingly minor decisions um, that it's hard for me to even really wrap my arms around now, almost a year into it, just how much it's impacted the work and how different things are. Um, and at the same time, how hopeful it is that I have been fortunate enough to be in a place where I've gone through processes on my own to sort of discern my own professional values that I've had supports in places like ACPA where I've been able to really um, question some assumptions that we make in the field, look at the ways that that issues like, um, you know, Western culture, white supremacy, uh, you know, the colonization of our work really lead to impacts that can be detrimental for students, for faculty and staff, for all of us as humans. And I think that one of the things that has really emerged to me over the last year is that sort of humanist approach to the work we do in higher education, I think has, has actually made that this, these transitions and these struggles more manageable for me. Uh, because my, as, as you know, what the way I approach the work in higher education is that we are humans working with and for and alongside other humans. And I think when you start with a foundation like that, um, you know, the, the way we make decisions, the way pr we prioritize things can change a little bit. So that's been, that's been something that I've, I've continued to hold. Hmm. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Thank you. Well, as you were talking, I, I was thinking you're talking about the things that we hold or the things that you're holding and, and um, in even seemingly small decisions. And, and the word weight just came to me. Like it just feels, mm. you know, they're weighty things. These are significant things. Um, and there's so many of them now, so many more, it seems like at the same time that you're trying, almost like your hands or arms just don't seem big enough, right? To hold all those things at the same time in tension um, and, 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 and care for each one, you know, and consider each one mm-hmm. at the level and weight that it deserves, um, you know, and that there's just, yeah, that there's a lot of weight in those decisions, but then also weight on people. And I feel like mm-hmm. the sentiment we've talked about before, and I've talked about with other friends and colleagues in the field of just, there's just this kind of exhaustion, this tiredness. And I yes. think that weight of what people are feeling in on their shoulders and the weight that's in their hands that they're trying to consider all of these these issues um, at one time and and I think any anyone um, doing this work you know is intelligent is analytical is thoughtful is conscientious you know you wouldn't be where you are if you weren't those things and so you know they can take they can take the line of logic or they can take they can see the impact of decisions you know that this this here might mean this but then over here it means X and and those are conflicting or those are mm-hmm. gonna you know bump up against each other and and that's you know and I know people carry that they carry that weight with them um, decision makers policymakers um, and also and I've I've been on the front lines implementing policy for many years in my career and and you see what that actually means when you're front lines with students um, for them and so um, or faculty in the classroom with students and so it's it's a lot it's a lot to bear and so that was kind of just some of my thoughts as you were speaking that I feel like I want to maybe put out there because I know that that's, mm-hmm. those are things we've talked about and sentiments that I feel like are out there in higher ed right now for, for folks all around the table. Um, yeah, I think if I could just add to that, I, I also think that I absolutely agree with what you're saying. And I think that that idea of weight, I have found it, there have often been times in my, my career where, you know, there's that feeling. I have a, a great friend and colleague who uh, is fluent in Japanese and has done some hard research in Japan. And there's a particular word for it. And I, I know I can't do the word justice, so I won't try to say it. But it's that concept of being exhausted. And it's sort of like a mental and emotional and spiritual exhaustion that it's not that I need to lay down and, and go to sleep. It's that I am sort of like brain tired and soul tired, you know? And I think that that's when I talk to, to colleagues and not just at, in my current institution, but, you know, colleagues throughout the field, lots of different geographies, that seems to be the prevailing sentiment. And I think that there's everything that we've talked about. And on top of it, the way that in the last you know, number of years, as the, the American public has started to move away from the notion of conceptualizing higher education as a public good, and it is now increasingly more seen as a private good, and we have research that sort of backs up that change in perception, and as policy has followed, I think that all of us in higher education, but particularly in administrative roles, you know, you're, you become very self-conscious that when you're making decisions, there's, you know, it's, it's like that, the, the spider web analogy, you pull on one part of it, you make a decision. It's, you know, almost no, no area is left unimpacted. Um, so you're, you're holding, you know, people's educations and a, a, if for most of us, a genuine commitment to trying to continue to foster an engaged, you know, critical citizenry. That's, that's one of the highest aims of higher education, I think in our country. Um, and at the same time, realizing that the decisions you make over here might be impacting the, the, the positions that are available over there. And so it's a, I think you're absolutely right. I think that idea of weight or, you know, your arms not being, you know, capable of holding everything at once is yeah. really an apt analogy. Yeah. 
So along those lines, um, and I know that you've recently or you're going to be doing some keynotes um, uh, and, and asking, they've asked you to think about this. I, and I want you to talk about this because I know you've been thinking about it. Looking to the future of higher ed, what do you see? What are some of these lasting impacts do you foresee as a result of this pandemic? And I know in some ways, you know, it's, we're still in the middle of it, totally still in the middle of it. But, you know, as, as much as you can anticipate um, and look ahead, you know, what are we what are we taking with us from here? How are we changing as a field? Yeah, you know, I think there are a lot of, I could, I could honestly take what would probably be an easier way out and talk about the ways that there are some of the more technical aspects of the work that I think we'll take with us, like the nature of work itself. And, you know, certainly in some cases for, for faculty or instructors, but, but even more so for staff or administrators, the nature of work and where you have to be to do your work and when that work happens, you know, I can see those things changing maybe more rapidly than they would have otherwise. And that's something that we might carry out with us out of the pandemic. Um, you know, a different take on, or not just reliance on, but a different conceptualization of technology and how it integrates into and supports, or in some cases impedes our work. I think those things are all there, but you know, the real, the real higher ed scholar in me, the researcher in me is really more interested in some of these, these bigger concepts. You know, I talked a minute ago about the, the notion that higher education is, is not seen as much as a public good as it once was. And that impacts policy and it impacts public funding. Uh, the way the, you know, really the whole funding issues around the higher, higher education as a sector function in this country. Um, but I also think, you know, maybe there will be an opportunity um you know, and I hope it doesn't sound coarse to use that kind of language, but maybe as we as we come out of a pandemic, hopefully later this year, and are reconvening physically more often on our campuses or having conversations, uh, I actually hope it's not a complete return to normal. I mean, something, you know, you and I have talked about this for a long time, but I think that in the, the, the sort of like neoliberal trend in higher education over the last 10 or 15 years, I think we've really bought into this, this myth of efficiency. Um, this idea that the best way to do something is the most efficient way to do something. And as you've heard me say many times, you know, it's, we're in education. We're not, we're not making widgets. Um, and I think that there are, there are plenty of times that I found in my career that the, the most efficient way to do something or the cheapest way to do something in terms of dollars spent doesn't always result in the best outcomes for students. And so hopefully there's, there's, there's an, a way, there's a, a path to a conversation, perhaps a reckoning in our field where we say that, you know, we have um, sort of held higher education, some of our leaders have held higher education out there as, as a business. Uh, I personally reject that model. I don't conceptualize higher education as a business. I conceptualize it as education. Um, and and if, we, if we choose to center education, if we choose to center people and we choose to center students' learning and well-being and development, then we make decisions and value different things sometimes. Um, and so I, my hope is that one of the things that hopefully we all have a sense of, you know, amid the pandemic and after the pandemic is the shared sense of humanity that we have. I don't know that it's, you know, perhaps ever been as prescient for as many people that the, the choices and the actions that I take today have the very real ability to affect not just me and my family, but everyone else that I might come into contact with, right? Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, I would I would love it if at some point in the next months and years we're having conversations about some of these larger issues and, you know, perhaps a business model isn't the right model to put on higher education. Yes, we have bills that we need to pay. Yes, we need to compensate people and we need to pay them a living wage. That doesn't necessarily inherently make us a business. Um, and what does that mean? You know, yes, there might be a way to do this uh, on the cheap. And if that is, if that still results in great outcomes for students, then I think that's fantastic and allows us to do other things um, and, and keep costs as low as we can for everyone involved. Um, but even even questions about going back to that idea of higher education as a public good, about where funding comes from and how funding works and how federal financial aid works. I mean, I think at some point a reckoning about some of those those larger issues uh, might be accelerated by the by the pandemic. Mm. Um, thank you. I, I, oh, there's so many, there's so many things that we could talk about from that. Um, I'm always so inspired when we talk. I, it's one of the reasons, um, I wanted to have you, you know, on the channel. Cause I just think you have so many, um, wonderful ideas. And I love that you're saying this as you're, you know, you're the assessment guy on, on your campus. <laughs> you're, that's who you are. And, and I love that in so many ways you're, you know, counterintuitive and non-traditional and non-conventional in that, you know, your qualitative and your anthropology background and all those pieces. And, um, 
you know, because I think a lot of times we think of asse- people, you know, make those arguments, the business model and assessment and is learning just becoming like, you know, a number and, mm-hmm. and an outcomes based thing. And what does that really mean, the outcome? And, um, and all those, you know, all those arguments, all those debates, um, all those, you know, narratives. And um, so I think, you know, just you as a person, you engender and embody like just, um, you know, a, a counter narrative to what we might think of with along those lines. And so I, I love that you're actually in that position and you hold these these views um, because I think that's really powerful. Um, and I've often said, so I do assessment work, which, you know, some people on my scholars, like the, my scholarly who know me as my, and my scholarly work and my advisors, mm-hmm. you know, just couldn't understand. They're like, oh my gosh, like it doesn't make sense. Like here I am studying like qualitative work and dating and relationships and sexuality and identity. And, and then over here I do assessment. Um, but I only do assessment because we'd started it together and, and we approach it in that way. And I, um, I Whoa. see so many other possibilities with it when we talk about the humanity, when we talk about the student learning and growth and development, and that Absolutely. is what drives our work. Well, and um, I think there's, the, there's the other, absolutely the other connection there is, and you, you've said this before, is that, you know, we're, we're both lovers of process, right? Yes. Um, so <laughs> I think our listeners have probably heard me say that a few times. I am a right. person. And so I think that that, you know, when you, when you are a lover of process, as I am, and as I know you are, I think that that, that really, it supports one of the, I think the tenets that I think we, we teach and we learn in good graduate programs, which is to question everything. You know, don't don't just take an assumption at face value, but really, you know, hold it in your hands and turn it around and question it. Really interrogate where it comes from and what it's predicated upon. And I think when you, you know, when you immerse yourself in process, whether it is in our own research and our own topical areas, if it is in assessment at you know a program or department or institutional level, that that approach really serves us well. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that kind of undergirds a lot of what we're talking about. Yes. And I think what you were talking about, just last thing on this before I move on, but what you were talking about is this, it's process. It's when you say I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm about education. I'm not about like a business model, but educate. Well, education is a process, right? And, Mm -hmm. and, and that's, you know, even measuring that anybody who's tried to do it, anyone who does it knows it's, it's an elusive, hard thing and we do our best, but it's, it's, you know, it's a process, it's growth, it's internal. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that we can't capture. We do our best to capture those but, um, you know, it's, and there's, and I think, you know, we'd be remiss if we to think we could or should be capturing all of it because there is some piece that is mysterious. There is some piece that is, you know, meant to be, you know, um, you know, left to just, you know, change us at our core mm-hmm. and, and, um, you know, helping students reflect on that and, and, and be able to articulate that is, is certainly part of the process. But anyway, now I'm really digressing here. So I'm going to, um, I'm going to move us ahead here. But um, one of the things that I, I, I think is important, you know, I always try to look ahead and, and this question could seem, you know, really challenging in this present moment. Um, I think, you know, that the, you know, a vaccine has been released, a few vaccines have been released at this point. So we're starting to see some, you know, movement forward. So when the pandemic is completely behind us, if we can kind of imagine a world in which we're there um, and you're looking back on this period, what do you hope to be able to say? Well, um, I think and I hope could, to be able to no, start. I would say, and that could be about you personally or professionally, you know, take that any way you want to. I mean, I hope to be, for me personally, and, and my wife, Farron, and I talk about this, you know, not infrequently. I think personally, I hope to be able to look back and say that was really, really hard in a lot of ways. And I feel like the decisions that we made day in and day out about, you know, what we're willing to do and how much interaction we had with other people as, as challenging as those decisions were, I feel like they really aligned with, our values and the sense of responsibility that we feel to our community and to our family and, you know, to, to just other humans. Um, so in a personal sense, I think I, I hold that a lot. Um, as far professionally, I think I, I hope to be able to look back and say that, you know, sort of a similar sense that we, we made decisions um, collectively as certainly at the institutional level, but even as a field that centered people as people that were responsive to health and that were, um, responsive to the inequities in the pandemic, which are really, you know, just a, a even more exaggerated or exacerbated version of the inequities that exist in, in our social lives. Um, I think e- even beyond that, though, I would hope to be able to look back and say that, you know, I think that in terms of things like pro- measures of things like productivity, right, you talk about me as the assessment guy, and that word comes up in my work sometimes, productivity, um, which is really problematic. That's a whole other podcast episode I could talk about. Uh, but the, you know, that notion of 
how much did we get done and at what quality did we get things done? I, I hope to be able to say that, yes, we got we got a lot done. And I can say so far from the last year, you know, my team at Bellarmine, who I'm immensely proud of, there's been an incredible effort and they've gotten not just an amazing amount of work done, but incredible work that's been done. Um, but I also hope we look back and say, you know, maybe we could have made more progress in that area absent the pandemic, or we could have spent more time or effort focused on on this or that. However, I'm glad that we chose not to because we need to recognize that the impacts of this time, all the far-reaching impacts of the pandemic are impacting our people and that we should be centering people and their well-being um, and not just trying to extract as much time and effort as we can uh, without driving people away. Uh, I think that's, you know, that goes back to some of my ideas I was talking before about neoliberalism or, or some of my thoughts about the, the way capitalism impacts our work um, or colonization impacts our work. But I think that's what I'd like to be able to look back and say is that, you know, yes, it was really hard, you know, for those of us who are fortunate enough to to get through it, um, to say that we held our own and each other's humanity as among the, the most important priorities in this time. Um, and that we not only did we allow space for people to take the time and use the time to do what they needed to do, but that we also created space in our quote unquote professional settings to process what was happening. That's another concern that I've had about about higher education for a while now is that, you know, it's funny to talk about before the meetings in the halls outside the conference rooms or or the the classrooms because I haven't been in a conference room in so long or a classroom physically in so long. Um, But those conversations, you know, we talk about what's happening in the world. We talk about what's going on. In recent years, we've talked more about racial injustice, about Black Lives Matter, about, about all these things that are very prescient in our lives and to our work. And then we go in and we sit down at the conference table or, you know, class convenes. And so often we don't talk about those things with each other, with our students. Um, and I think there are lots of reasons why that's the case. So, so maybe there's a, an outcome of the pandemic where we look back and say, you know, we started to talk about what was really going on and how people were really doing, even in those, those more quote unquote formal spaces. And maybe that's something that we carry forward into our work after. Mm, yes. And I think, you know, when you think about that, the fact that we maybe don't open up and we're not real about the Mm -hmm. real things seems a little ironic because you're now seeing, you know, people's unmade, you know, guest room beds or, you know, (laughs) you're in people's like, like I, you know, I'm on Zoom calls sometimes with, you know, committees for my kids' schools and, you know, people are in their closets and, you know, you're just seeing all these spaces in people's homes that you would never see, you know, before. Everybody's pets. Yeah. The whole thing. And so, you know, it's kind of that irony for me. And we've talked about this before of kind of like, you know, let's, it's, let's bring the real and bring, you know, the humanity and our human side on on our personal side, because you're seeing it in in a lot of ways, right? There's Mm -hmm. no, it's, those are such blurred lines these days. Um, So Mm -hmm. you might as well talk about the things that are real. Um, so thank you. Thank you for kind of bringing that up. Um, so, and this, this can be hard sometimes it's kind of a question, but, you know, do your best with this. And cause I feel like some people, you know, they're, they're looking for guidance or, you know, other people in similar situations, like what are they doing over there or, you know, and people who aren't even, you know, at that level, maybe just curious as to, you know, what, what would you say? So if you, what advice would you give, if any, to, um, do you have for, you know, other administrators working through similar challenges? Everybody's kind of in the same boat in higher ed at this point. Um, mm-hmm. So what advice do you have? What would you say to your colleagues across across the country? To my colleagues across the field, I would say take care of your people. Um, and that, that certainly includes our students, but that also includes your fellow faculty, staff, and administrators. Um, I think that, you know, we talk about higher education as a community, not infrequently. And, you know, community, part of being in community is having a sense of responsibility to and for each other. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that taking care of your people means if you are in a position, you know, say as a, as a mid-level manager or as a a senior leader or an executive leader, um, you know, you, I I think it's, it's a responsibility. And I, I, I will say it's a personal responsibility that I felt even more than I had before the pandemic to say to, to other colleagues on campus or other places in the field, you know, yes, that sounds really interesting. Yes, that's part of our strategic priorities or is really important. And with everything else that's going on right now, that's not something that is going to be achievable on the desired timeline. So let's talk about other options. And so, I, you know, I, I often have talked about, and I think you've heard me talk about this this way too, Dana, but I talk about leadership sometimes as being sort of like a shock absorber. Um, that I, I think that's part of one of the responsibilities that we have is to recognize um 
to check in with our people, recognize how they're doing, recognize what, what their pressures are, not in a way that micromanages what everyone is doing, but to have sort of a situational awareness of what's going on and to be able to advocate for not just for ourselves, but also for our teams, for our people and say, you know, have some of those conversations. They know, yes, I know we had planned to have all three of these major projects done by roughly, you know, the end of the semester or by the end of the summer, whatever the timeline is. But given everything that's happening, this is what's going to be more realistic. Um, and I think for people who are, you know, whether you're in any kind of leadership role right now, or if you're a grad student or a new professional in the field, I think that one of the, the lessons that I would love for, for many of us to learn is that having these conversations about what is realistic and on what timeline and how much work it is, that's something we need to become more comfortable with as, as practitioners and as scholars in higher education. Um, you know, I think that working with students, as you and I have from very early, early on in our careers, one of the, the earliest lessons of my career was that to be an effective professional, and I now think to be an effective leader, you have to try to find some level of comfort with uncomfortable conversations. Mm. And so I, I think that we need to extend that concept a little bit. And, you know, sometimes advocating for yourself, advocating for your own time or your own well-being, you know, given a particular context can be quite uncomfortable. Um, you know, the, the other sort of prevailing sense, especially since 2008, the recession that happened then that, you know, there's never been a true recovery from in higher education. Um, you know, there's, there's a prevailing sense in higher education. There has been since that time. And at that time I had an administrator who, who flat out said to me and, and several people on my team, you should just be thankful you have a job at all. And that has been sort of the implicit sense that some leaders, not, I'm not saying all, I'm not even saying most, but that some leaders I think have often unconsciously adopted. And I think that's a lesson we need to unlearn uh, the idea of be grateful you have a job at all. And I'm going to extract as much work and as much effort and as much time out of you as I can while paying you as little as possible and, and providing as few benefits to you as I possibly can get away with. Um, again, I, th that makes it sound like there's this sort of malicious intent driving, you know, a portion or a large portion of the field. And I don't think it is malicious. I think it's cultural. It's become, it's, it's what we've become acculturated to, what we've allowed to seep in as norms into our, our, our practice. And so I think that that's the, you know, not necessarily undoing, but evolving that to have conversations that actually, and again, these conversations shouldn't be that hard to have in some sense, because a lot of these conversations about that I would hope people would be having about advocating for themselves, advocating for their people, oftentimes align really closely with our espoused mission and values in higher education. So you have a great connection point there to lead you into those. I'm not sure if that completely got at your question, but that's what, that's what kind of comes up right now. No, it's, that's, that's great. That's, that's totally fine. And, and, you know, as we're kind of getting near time here, I, I, and so, so to piggyback off that, I, I want to ask you um, about how you do self-care. So we talk about the weight, you know, that people are feeling and there's, there's so much uncertainty in the world, the pandemic. I mean, we're kind of framing this conversation around the pandemic, but Mm -hmm. There's social unrest, the election, the attacks on the Capitol. I mean, it's just been an unending barrage of mm -hmm. deeply difficult things to deal with this past year as a country, as people, um, and across higher ed. So people are exhausted and people and burnout is real. I feel like burnout was real before, you know, the pandemic yeah. in higher ed for all the reasons that you cited, um, because that was, you know, that 2008 time as we were kind of new in, in, um, not entirely new, but semi-new professionals and in, mm -hmm. and in our grad programs and coming up. And that's kind of been, the, that has sort of been a sentiment since that time. Um, so with all the, with all of that, you know, how are you caring for yourself and working to avoid burnout? What do you do? You know, I wish I had a great regimen to say, well, I do these three things and it's, and that really helps. And that's not, that, that, that's, that would just be disingenuous. That's not true. Um, I, you know, I think like a lot of other folks, I, there are times that I'm better about it and times that I'm not, I'll be honest. I've always been, um, kind of a, a news junkie anyway. And so, you know, throughout the whole election cycle and, and over, you know, the last few months with all the horrific things that we've seen, you know, it's, that's been hard for me to stay out of much, if at all. Um, I feel a sense of, you know, like personal civic responsibility to, to be aware of what's going on and to contribute my voice where I think it can help. Um, I think, you know, th there are really little things. I mean, I'll tell you one of the things that has happened since the pandemic that was not the case for me before is that, you know, on days where the weather allows, I get out of the house and take the dog for a walk for usually, you know, 45 minutes or an hour and just walk through the neighborhood for, you know, a couple or three miles. And that is, that might sound kind of trite, but it's something I'm able to do. It, it you know, it keeps me from having close contact with anyone else. Um, 
And for me personally, there's something about physically being outside that I guess is, which, which is kind of strange for me to say, because I'm not really not, anyone who knows me, I'm not really an outdoorsy person. <laughs> not. Uh, no, I'm really not. Um, you know, over the summer and into the fall, I was, you know, I would, I would take my laptop and sit outside and, and work outside in our backyard uh, for a few hours a day if I could, uh, if I didn't have too many meetings on, on, on screens. Um, I also think that, you know, one of the things that I've been really fortunate is, I've mentioned ACPA a couple of times and my involvement in ACPA over the last, you know, 10 years or so has really benefited me a lot. And in ways that I have really come to fruition or that I've really attended to in the pandemic. And one of them is that I got used to doing meetings on zoom calls like many, many years ago. And so doing meetings that way, wasn't much of a transition for me and connecting with friends that way from other, other parts of the, the country wasn't that strange for me. And so, you know, just doing zoom coffees and happy hours with people. I'm actually, I'm, I'm one of the people that I was, you know, would do that occasionally before anyway. And so I'm not so worn out with Zoom that that isn't still fun for me. Um, I think one of the things that, you know, my wife, Fair, I think was the first person who put it this way to me, but, you know, it seems like over the course of the pandemic, our worlds, not that we're not attentive to things that are happening more broadly, but because for many of us, we're choosing not to travel um, or who are choosing to, to only see, um, you know, a very small number of people, it feels like our worlds have gotten a bit smaller and so I think that in my, because I'm so immersed in my work every day and I have, you know, hours of meetings most days with other people on my campus to talk to other people in the field, but in other places. So people who get some of the same issues that we're dealing with, but are, are not the people that you see day in and day out, that has been professionally has been an incredible source of, of, you know, some healing and rejuvenation along the way. Um, so I, I definitely recommend that. And then the thing that I always have loved anyway is is working with students and you know new professionals and, and lately in my career that's my graduate students so there are a couple of students right now whose dissertation committees I'm on um, there's some new professionals who I've been very fortunate who've, who've asked me to sort of be a professional mentor to them earlier in their careers and spending time with some of those people um, has really sort of helped fill me fill my tank back up hmm. great well thank yeah. you so much yeah, is there very, anything very glad to. Did you want to share anything else? No, no. I was just going to say it's, you know, for, for people, I was, I was just processing as I was talking and, you know, everything I talked about was interacting with other people. So if you're not an extrovert like I am, those probably sound like terrible <laughs> suggestions and I apologize, but that, <laughs> those things are restorative for me. Well, no, that's great. That's great. And I, you know, to, just to piggyback on what you said and um, before we wrap, I, um, you know, that idea of like, you know, connecting with other people, because in some ways the world, your day-to-day world feels so small, but then being able to connect with people and hear um, that people are in similar situations and, you know, experiencing similar things is is really healing and is really helpful. And that's the intent behind kind of this, um, you know, these number of episodes that uh, Christina and I are doing on pandemic perspectives and sharing, talking to people at different, in different places and stages in higher ed and, and, you know, capturing what this this experience has been like for them and how they're juggling it, you know, professionally or academically with their, with their studies or their, their work and then Mm -hmm. personally. And so, you know, I hope as listeners are are hearing this, that, that it does rejuvenate them and they do feel connected and they know that they're not alone in their own experience of this because it does help to hear people talk about that. So um, I just want to, Jim, thank you again for being on the show today and sharing those experiences with us and your insights. Um, And um, we just, it's been, it's been a great conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it too. I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.